Hey everyone, it's Michelle. And Brandy. And this is Spooky Shit. So this week we're going to be talking about notorious serial killers. And I'll start off by talking about Edward Theodore Gein. Ooh. And then I'm going to talk about John Wayne Gacy. Warning. This episode may contain graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. I didn't know who Brandy was choosing. I didn't just like fake that. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Well, yep. ta- take it off, Brandy. All right. Well, he's more commonly known as just Ed Gein. Or the Butcher of Plainfields or Plainfield Ghoul. I definitely recognize the name. I don't know if I know the story. I'll get there at the end. <laughs> okay. Uh, you might not know him by name, but it will all make sense. As you talk, I'm going to be like, oh, shit. You're going to be like, hmm, sounds familiar. <laughs> but yeah, Ed Ging was born in La Crosse County, Wisconsin on August 27, 1906. He was the youngest of two boys to George Philip Gein and Augusta Willingheim Gein. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right now that I think about it. Gein or Gain? Yeah, I apologize, but like, not really. (laughs) He had it coming. But yeah, his brother was Henry George Gein, and he was five years older than Ed. Okay. Um, Ed's childhood was interesting, to say the least. He grew up seeing how much his mom despised his dad. Um, <laughs> Healthy. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting. But <laughs> Augusta basically hated George because he was an alcoholic and unable to keep a job. Uh, he worked various times as a carpenter, insurance salesman, and a tanner. Whoa. For those of you who don't know, a tanner is like um, the people that kind of like work with the animal skins to like make leather. Yeah, I knew that from RuneScape. (laughs) That's why I was like, whoa, that's like a weird ass job. (laughs) Right? But yeah, that's what he used to do. Um, But yeah, George owned a local grocery shop for a few years but sold the business and it was then that the family left the city to live in isolation on a 155-acre farm in the town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Uh, Augusta took advantage of the farm's isolation by turning away outsiders who could influence her boys. Oh, no. She, she definitely used it to her advantage, to oh, say God. the least. Um, they would only leave the farm to go to school. Hey. But that, I was kind of surprised about that. I was like, is she really going to have so much control? I thought she would, like, homeschool them. True. Maybe it wasn't as easy. I feel like it would be easy to do it back then. I don't know. But Which I was is like... it's kind of funny because I feel like you get a lot of influence from school. <laughs> <laughs> the things I learned in public school. <laughs> True. But, yeah, when he wasn't at school, Ed spent most of his time doing chores on the farm. Um... Augusta was super duper religious and she was, yeah, she was Lutheran. She often preached to her boys about the imminent immorality of the world 
the evil of drinking and her belief that all women, apart from herself, were naturally promiscuous mm-hmm. and instruments of the devil. Apart from herself. Yeah, apart from herself, okay? Not all but, women. <laughs> well, all women, just not her. <laughs> the funniest Cause, shit cause ever. Because she's, she's Zerma. Talk about some internalized sexism going on there. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess she reserved time every afternoon to read them from the Bible, usually selecting verses from the Old Testament and the Book of Revelation. How concerning- did I know the old <laughs> violent shit? <laughs> um, but yeah, just mostly like the verses of uh, concerning death, murder, and divine retribution. Oh my god, I fucking knew this bitch. You know, all this religious talk. She was probably a serial killer too. <laughs> yeah, she was, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's definitely sus. I have some <laughs> theories. Oh, okay. Ed was described as shy, and classmates and teachers remembered him as having strange mannerisms. Okay. I'm not sure what they meant by that, but... He's probably just um, awkward. Yeah, I guess he was just, like, socially awkward, which makes sense. He yeah. didn't really socialize with any kids besides, like, his brother and... And his weirdo mom. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess one really weird thing he would do is just randomly laugh. That's terrifying. Like, like if he was like laughing at his own personal joke in his head and just like start like <laughs> cracking it up. Ew. I mean, I guess I do that sometimes. I remember something funny, but like, I don't know. It's just weird because knowing that he becomes a serial killer, I'm like, what a creep. Right? <laughs> but I guess Augusta actually would punish them if they even like tried to make friends. So. <gasps> What? Pretty fucked up. Honestly, what a shitty mom. Right? <laughs> um, but despite his <laughs> social awkwardness, he actually did really well in school, particularly in reading. He loved to like read. Okay. Um, on April 1st, 1940, Ed's father died of heart failure caused by his alcoholism. He was 66. Ed was 33, 34, around there. Okay. So he was an adult, but yeah. he was still living on the farm and, like, working. Oh, God. Never made um, a friend in his life. Nope. Not, well, I'm sure he made some, but, like, probably. I don't want to ruin it. Based on what's going to happen later, I don't you'll know. <laughs> you'll see in the next part. Okay. After their father's death, Henry and Ed began doing odd jobs around town to help cover living expenses. They were generally considered reliable and honest by residents of the community. While both worked as handymen, um, Ed also frequently babysat for neighbors. Oh, God. trusted him. Ooh, you know as soon as whatever came forward, they were like, fuck. The fact that you said that actually sounds weirdly familiar. (laughs) So I'm just waiting. The more things you say and the more I'm like, I must have heard this before. But yeah, I guess he enjoyed babysitting because I guess he related more to kids than adults. Yeah. I mean, in a way, kids can be nicer than adults. That's true. (laughs) They also could be meaner. Kids are kind of dicks. But he he probably didn't have much of a childhood, so it's just him. He probably never grew in social regards. (laughs) True. But yeah, Henry then began dating a divorced mother of two and planned to move in with her. Whoa. 
and Henry, he was five years older and he was a little more normal, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, he actually worried about Ed's attachment to their mother and often like would talk shit about her in front of or like around Ed. Whoa. And I guess Ed just responded with like shock and hurt, like like if he was a little kid, you know, just kind of like, how dare oh. you talk about mom like that? Weird. I'm wondering. I don't want you to say anything, but I'm wondering if this is going to be like the inspiration for Bates Motel or something. Just keep I talking. Know, I don't want to hear anything. It's just that's the vibe I just got. Anyways. <laughs> On May 16th, 1944, Ed and Henry were burning away marsh vegetation on the property, and the fire ended up getting out of control, <gasps> drawing attention of the local fire department. Um, by the end of the day, after the fire was ex extinguished and the firefighters left, Ed reported Henry missing. <gasps> oh, <laughs> shit. So, it was already, like, nighttime. So, with lanterns and flashlights, a search party searched for Henry, whose dead body was found lying face down. Oh. Whoa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least he just died from the fire and natural causes, right? <laughs> uh, apparently, he had been dead for some time, and it appeared that the cause of death was heart failure since he had not been burned or injured otherwise. Oh, shit. Sketch. <sighs> it was later reported by biographer Harold Shexter. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. um, he's a true crime writer who specializes in serial killers. Okay. But he said that Henry had bruises on his head. Well. Or at least, like, it's a theory or something like that. Um, the police dismissed the possibility of foul play and the county coroner later officially listed asphyxiation. Oh, fuck. Asphyxiation. Yes, asphyxiation as a cause of death. What? But what did he asphyxiate on? <laughs> they looked like, I don't know, choked. It was like the 1940s or something you said, right? Yeah. They didn't know shit. They just saw him there without any huge <laughs> injuries. They're like, well, he is yeah, that too. <laughs> like, literally, like, the authorities just accepted the accident theory. Um, oh. So there was no official investigation, and they didn't do an uh, what's it called? autopsy. Autopsy. Fuck. So it's like sketch. Yeah, definitely. Shortly after Henry's death, Augusta had a paralyzing stroke. And mm -hmm. Ed devoted himself to taking care of her. What a nice guy, right? Yeah. And this is just a little story of... <laughs> make you dislike Augusta even more. Oh, God, like I hadn't already. So, yeah, sometime in 1945... Well, this is like Ed, like, recounting. Okay. He said that he and his mother visited a man named Smith, who lived nearby to purchase straw. According to Ed, Augusta witnessed Smith beating a dog. <gasps> um, then a woman inside the Smith home came outside and yelled at him for for him to stop, but Smith beat the dog to death. Oh, my God. 
That made Augusta extremely upset, but not why you would expect. Oh God, was she like, why would a woman come and yell at a man? (laughs) Exactly that. No, why? She was bothered by the presence of the woman, not because of the brutality against the dog. Yo. I guess she told Ed that the woman was not married to Smith, so she had no business being there. She called her Smith's harlot. Is that how you say it? Harlot? Harlot? Harlot. Harlot. Like mistress, kind of? Yeah, like prostitute. Like his hoe. I I looked up the meaning because I've seen that word, but I never actually knew the official. Yeah. But it's basically a prostitute. Okay. Yo, his mom's a bitch. Yeah, bro. I'm pretty sure that she was also a serial killer and it's genetically passed. Down. I don't know, but I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> let you know my theory at the end. Ooh, I'm so excited to hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, soon after that, like memory he has, Augusta had a second stroke and her health deteriorated rapidly. <laughs> God was having none of that. And he was like, stop <laughs> it. He said, fuck you, bitch. Fuck you. Uh, she died on December 29th, 1945. She was Whoa. 67. Ed was devastated by her death. And that author that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. in his words, he said that he had lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in the world. His one true love. I mean, you could just kind of guess. Ew, were they incestuous? You'll get to uh, it. I mean... Not confirmed. Ooh, we're going to get to the theories later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, after Ed was all alone, he held on to the farm and earned money from odd jobs. Mm-hmm. He boarded up the rooms used by his mother, including, like, what was multiple rooms? Like well, a room upstairs, a parlor upstairs, a parlor mm-hmm. downstairs, and the living room. And then basically, like, he only lived in the little room by the kitchen like that's where he like yeah well i mean it was a pretty like fairly decent sized house yeah but that's weird (laughs) right but then i saw that like he left them untouched and basically like they were just like so well preserved that it looked like pristine compared to the rest of the house it just kind of like got all ugly untouched yeah that's so weird. Very. It's like a shrine. Ah! Around this time, he became interested in reading pulp magazines and adventure stories, particularly those involving cannibals or Nazi atrocities. Not the kind of stories I thought you were going to tell me he was reading. Right? I was like, uh, oh, superheroes. You're like, Nazis and cannibals. <laughs> that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Not my cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> Can <Can't> we agree there? <laughs> On the morning of November 16th, 1957, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden disappeared. No. <laughs> oh, no. She Here looked just go. like his mother. <laughs> <laughs> A Plainfield resident reported that the hardware store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building at around 9.30 a.m. Very few customers visited the store that day. Some uh, people in the area believed that it was due to deer hunting season. Okay. Bernice Warden's son was actually 
a deputy sheriff. His name was Frank. Uh, He actually entered the store around 5 p.m. to find the store's cash cash register open and blood stains on the floor. (gasps) Ooh, that must have been so scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Frank Borden told investigators that the, on the evening before his mother's disappearance, Ed had been in the store and that he was was to have returned the next morning for a gallon of antifreeze. Okay. So uh, he actually did his own research and found, like, the receipt. Whoa. Um, Investigation. Yeah. And I guess that was the last receipt that, like, Bernice wrote in the morning that she disappeared. Uh- so it's like kind of like kind of obvious, kind of obvious. On the evening of the same day, Ed was arrested at a West Plainfield grocery store. So the Washara County Sheriff's Department searched Ed's farm. So a county sheriff's deputy discovered Bernice Warden's decapitated body in a sh- well. Before <laughs> I should have gave okay. a warning. <laughs> Should we just start it over? Should we just keep that in? Because it was looking. I don't know. It's because I realized it's about to get really well, graphic. Hold on. Well, well, hold on. <laughs> Warning. We, okay. <laughs> oh god, that was good. Oh, we have Robert's warning, but yeah, just a little extra warning. Okay. Um. Yeah. Deputy sheriff discovered Bernice Warden's decapitated body in a shed on Ed's property. Her body was hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles Mm -mm. and ropes at her wrists. Nope. Uh, The torso was dressed out like a deer. No. Yeah. I don't think you want to know the specifics of that or of what dressed out means. I've seen Hannibal. So I've seen like, I remember watching in high school and seeing shit like that and being like, but do you want to describe it for the listeners? Just basically dressed out is the process of removing the internal organs of like hunted game. Oh my god. So they basically like, you know, cut down the oh. middle and like you know I'm just zoning I think out you while can you use you can use your out. imagination for the rest. I see Brandy doing motions that you don't all have to see. <laughs> it's so disturbing. Uh, I'm sorry. Closing my eyes. (laughs) She had been shot with a 22 caliber rifle. And thankfully, the mutilations were made after her death. Thank fucking God. I was so scared of hearing that. (laughs) Uh, While searching the house, authorities found many interesting items. This is a long list of very... I think I know what the story is now. Disturbing... Oh, shit. I think I know what this is. Alright, this is a long-ass list. You ready? Uh, Let's go. A whole human likes bones and fragments. A waste bag basket made of human skin. I've heard this story. Human skin... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> human skin covering several chair seats. Brandy. Sorry. Skulls on his bedposts. <gasps> Female skulls, some with the top sawn off. Oh my god. Bowls made from human skulls. I remember hearing that one. 
Uh, a corset made from a female torso, skinned from short shoulders to the waist. Um. Oh my god. Sorry. Why was he weirdly crafty? <laughs> Why are know. you making these things, you fucking weirdo? There's more. Oh god. Uh, leggings made from human leg skin. No! <gasps> Masks made from skin of female heads. Do you think he wore them? Um, a woman's face mask in a paper bag. Ew. A woman's skull in a box. Uh, Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack. Bernice Warden's heart in a plastic bag in front of Ed's potbelly stove. No. No. He was going to eat it? I don't know. Possibly. Nine parts of the female body in a shoebox? Do you mean like vaginas? Yeah, basically. Vaginas. See, Uh, I think I definitely heard this before, but I've blocked most of these items out of my memory. Yeah, I mean... Now there are research- there's one specifically I'm waiting for you to say that's really... that always got to me. Um, a young girl's dress and more two more. Um, mm-hmm. Oh. Wait. That were judged to have been about 15 years old. <gasps> no. Um, a belt made from... F- Female human nipples. That's the one I was waiting for. As soon as you're like, they went to his house and found some weird stuff. And I was like, it's the nipple belt guy, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. That's haunted me for years. It's so weird. It's so weird. That's a lot of nipples. Ew, I know. Uh, four, four noses. Oh. A pair of lips on a window shade. A lampshade made from the skin of a human face. Oh my god. And fingernails from female fingers. Oh. I'm making fists right now to hide my fingernails. (laughs) Ew. These artifacts were photographed at the state crime laboratory and then decently disposed of. Whatever that means. Probably fucking incinerated it. They were like, oh, no thank you. (laughs) So yeah. When questioned... Uh, Ed told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, about span of five years, mm-hmm. uh, he made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards. Wait, uh, <laughs> this is not the twist I was expecting here. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but he would go to exhume recently buried bodies while he was in a daze like state. Sure thing, buddy. Uh huh. <laughs> he says, on about thirty of those visits, he would like come to, and mm-hmm. just leave empty-handed. Uh huh. But those other trips. But yeah, on on other occasions, he dug up the graves recently buried of middle-aged women he thought resembled his mother, <sighs> and took their bodies home where he tan their skins to make his shit. Nope. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he said that he was doing this in a dazed state, but he already knew what these women looked like, which means he was probably keeping track of people dying in the right? towns. Bullshitter, dude. Plus. 
Um, but yeah, Ed admitted to stealing from nine graves from local cemeteries and led investigators to their locations. Ugh. And they had like this whole, they actually went to go like dig them up again. Mm-hmm. Because I guess authorities, like, they didn't really, like, believe that Ed could do that on on his own. Because he was, like, a little scrawny. Yeah, it's like a lot of fucking work digging up an entire grave. Yeah. But I guess he would do it when, the like, they technically didn't, like, seal it up all the way. Oh, so it was, like, softer dirt. Yeah. Like, he would do it right before they were, like, completely... Oh, hell no. Well, he he described the graves and, like, how he left them and, how they, you know, that's how they were going to find them. And he, like, exactly where he said, like, they did find, like, empty ones or there was mm-hmm. one that you could tell that he went down to, like, try to open, but mm-hmm. he lost his, like, pry bar or the crowbar. And they ended up finding another one because he didn't know where he lost it. Oh, my God. Oh, and another one. They dug up, the body was gone, but he had, like, gone back and returned some rings and body parts. What? Why do that? <laughs> I don't know. I returned them. But it basically, like, corroborated what he was saying. Yeah, like, he's not lying. He is a true yeah, creep. Exactly. Um, This is just where it gets more creepy. I just want to apologize. Oh, great, because the list of creepy, body yeah. item furniture... Wasn't creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so soon after his mother's death, Ed began began to create a woman suit. No, thank you. Um, so that he could become his mother. Okay. To literally crawl into her skin. Did he dig up his own mother? I don't know. That was unclear to me. I bet he I didn't. Think so. Hers was I don't special. Think... Yeah, that's why I'm like, I don't think so. That's why he just did it with women that looked like her. Creepy. But yeah, he denied ever, like, having sex with the bodies. He exhumed, explaining that they smelled too bad. Ew. So he probably thought about it? I don't know. I feel like he might have. Yeah. I don't know if I believe him. Ew, man. But during the interrogation, Ed also admitted to shooting Mary Hogan who was a tavern owner who disappeared in 1954. Whoa. And uh, remember I said that they found, like, a a woman's, like, face mask and then a skull uh, in a box? Yeah. It was hers. Nope. Thanks. No, I'm good. Yeah. Um. So he, like, confessed to that, but he denied, like, remembering anything, like, the details and stuff like that. He's like, Faker. I don't remember. Liar. And then this is just kind of where more stories come out about it, him. Oh, no. Uh, a 16-year-old whose parents were friends of Ed and who had attended ball games and movies with him reported that Ed had um, shrunken heads in his house. <laughs> like, he literally got went over to Ed's house. But I guess Ed played it off and just described them as relics from the Philippines sent by a cousin who had served on the islands during World War II. Hell no. But upon investigation by the police, these were determined to be human facial skin carefully peeled from the corpses and used by Ed as masks. Oh. 
Your face. <laughs> I I don't even know what to say about that. That's disgusting. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah. Um, Ed was also considered a, sp- a suspect in other several unsolved cases in Wisconsin. More notably, this like a uh, babysitter from like where La Crosse County where he was like born Evelyn Hartley okay that's the most common one that they think he had something to do with is connected to him yeah um but during questioning uh the Washara County Sheriff's Art Sheely Sheely Reportedly assaulted Ed by banging his head and face into a brick wall. Well, you can't do that. No, you cannot. Yikes. He's playing um, himself. That's, I mean, if that was today, well, actually, I don't know if anything would happen. Let's be real. But uh, <laughs> that could, like, get the charges, like, fucking dropped, probably. Um, That's kind of what happened. No! Uh, Ed's initial confession was ruled inadmissible. What a dumbass. Hmm. Art ended up dying of heart failure at the age of 43 in 1968 before Ed's trial. Many who knew Art said he was traumatized by the horror of Ed's crimes. And like along with knowing that he like fucked up the case. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they, may- they say that he was just too traumatized by that. That that's like kind of what caused him to die. Yeah, I mean, don't beat someone's ass when you're in a professional right? setting or ever maybe but yeah one of his friends says that he was a victim of ed as surely he was like just because he was so like traumatized by his crimes and shit like he basically killed him yikes That's what they tried to say i don't know honestly it kind of just sounded like he was doing a bad job <laughs> obviously he's not as bad as the murderer or anything but kind of dropped the ball on that one unfortunately Mm-hmm. Um, on November 21st, 1957, Ed was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, Ed was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent. Damn. Thus unfit for trial. No. <laughs> Uh, he was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. It is now called Dodge Correctional Institution. Okay. More friendly name. <laughs> yeah, I was like, better than the Criminally Insane. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it was just a mac- maximum security facility. He was later transferred to the Mendota, or Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. In 1968, doctors determined Ed was mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense. So they basically had another trial. So he wasn't legally insane. (laughs) Well, he was. Oh. (laughs) Um, The trial began on November 7th, 1968, and it lasted one week. Um, A psychiatrist testified that Ed had told him that he did not know whether the killing of Bernice Warden was intentional or accidental. How do you not know? I was like, well, the stuff you did after definitely wasn't accidental. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Sus. But I guess Ed had told him that while he 
was examining his gun at the store, it just went off. Uh, wouldn't there have been more blood at the scene? I mean, you said well, some blood. I don't know yeah, how much they blood. Said, he said a blood stain, so I think if it did happen there, he like tried to clean it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he said he was just trying to load a bullet into it, and it just went off. Why were you loading a bullet into your gun at the store while talking right? to her? That's my question. Were and you then, threatening her and it didn't go how you planned? I don't know. It says that he says that he like didn't even aim the rifle at her. And he doesn't remember anything else that happened. Fuck no. He was out of it. But yeah. Uh, he was found guilty by Judge Robert H. Gomar on November 14th, 1968. Dang. And he was committed to the Central State Hospital. Oh, I already said that. Well, for the criminally insane. Yeah, for the criminally insane. <laughs> he, Ed, spent the rest of his life in the mental hospital. Whoa. I don't know why I was almost expecting another crazy thing to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, just more interesting stuff. Like his house. His house and property were appraised for... 4700 which mm-hmm. is equivalent to 42000 in 2020 money. Not worth that much, honestly. Yeah, no. Well, I guess we're in San Diego. Maybe somewhere else that's worth a lot. Well, in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Um, his possessions were scheduled to be auctioned on March 30th, 1958. But in the early morning of March 20th, the house was destroyed by a fire. Oh, do you think someone said Suspicious. it? Yeah, That's I do, weird. because the fire marshal reported that the garbage fire, that a garbage fire had been set 75 feet away from the house by a cleaning crew who were given the task of disposing, like, shit, like yeah. co- hot coals and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and they, like, were able to tell that it didn't, like, spread from the ground to the house. Oh, from there. shit. So it was super sus. Us, arson was suspected, but the cause of the fire was never officially determined. Yeah. And there's, like, theories that, well, because remember Bernice Warden's son? I was, was like, thinking yeah, he was, him. he was up there, and they think that, I mean... He chose not to investigate it and obviously like firefighters like they didn't go try to save put out the fire at the house oh yeah it they was, all like, were the like least... this house sucks burn it to the fucking yeah ground. that's the <laughs> least of their priorities yeah but ed's 1949 ford sedan which he used to like transport the bodies yep. uh was sold at a public auction for 760 dollars 760 dollars which is equivalent to 6800 His car was sold to a carnival sideshow operator, Bunny Gibbons. Oh my god. And uh, Bunny charged carnival goers 25 cents admission to see it. I mean, the hustle is real, but it feels kind of disrespectful, <laughs> Bunny. Right? But yeah, Ed ended up dying at the Mendota Mental Hospital Institute. Due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer on July 26, 1984, at the age of 77. Dang. 
Yep. It's actually something like crazy to me. But over the years, souvenir seekers chipped pieces away from his gravestone. What? Like, yeah, dead ass. I was like, what the fuck? Um, but yeah, this literally like have a picture, and it's literally like all that's left is his name. That's um, so weird. But they like hella chipped it until the stone itself was stolen in two thousand. <laughs> oh damn. <laughs> Um, it was recovered a year later near Seattle, Washington. That's so which weird. is like, what the fuck? They were probably trying to sell it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but yeah, after they got it back, they just put it in the storage. That's fucking and... hilarious, honestly. Yeah. So the gravesite itself is now unmarked, but not unknown. <laughs> An ominous statement. <laughs> yeah. um, he's buried between his parents and his brother. Right where he wants to be. Right. Next to his mom. But yeah, Ed Gein's story has has had a lasting effect on American pop culture by its numerous appearances in film, music, and literature. And like I said earlier, you may not know him by mm-hmm. name, but you definitely will recognize certain things based off him. I'm just his... waiting for you to say the one I'm thinking. Yeah, it first came to widespread attention in Robert Bloch's suspense novel, Psycho. Yep. And then in Alfred Alfred Hitchcock's film, Psycho, based on the novel. Yep. (laughs) Um, Ed's story was loosely adapted into numerous films, including Deranged, In the Light of the Moon, Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield, Ed Gein, the musical, <laughs> and the Rob Zombie films, House of a Thousand Corpse, Corpses, and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects. Intense. Hold on, I'm not done. Ooh. <laughs> now you haven't gotten to mine yet. Ed also served as an inspiration for many fictional serial killers, most notably Norman Bates. I fucking knew it. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> um, there's more. Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That adds up. Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. Whoa, yeah. And Dr. Oliver Threadson in American Horror Story Asylum. Oh, I don't remember that. Damn. Um, As soon as you said, like, the mom stuff, I was like, Bates Motel. That's how I know him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was, that's my theory that, like, he was obviously obsessed with his mom. I don't know if it was ancestral or any of that, but like, yeah. I kind of feel that he would tell her what Henry was saying, and I feel mm-hmm. like she had him murder her brother, his brother. Whoa, that's actually, my theory. I could see that, and I mean, other people have that theory too. They say like that it was like a Cain and Abel story. Whenever you said there was a fire and then there was one brother left, I was thinking, this is biblical. Yeah. So (laughs) that's kind of my theory. I feel like she literally had a lot of control over him and did everything, anything she asked for. I could fucking see that. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Or if not, it was probably out of anger for his mother. But yeah, also, I'm... she was a dick, so I wouldn't be surprised if she was the well, reason. Well, I feel like he was. I feel like he was very like influenced, like like a child, you know. Oh, like, for sure. He, I feel like he definitely would like go to her and be like, "Mom, like, 
he's like saying this and this and she's like oh really go do this you know he must die yeah <laughs> i can see it honestly that's a good theory <laughs> yeah but yeah that's the story of ed Gein. um there's also like some songs out there about him there's actually a band too named ed Gein. jesus christ you can't think of a better band name than a literal serial killer right <laughs> do you know what grindcore is Oh, no, I do not. I guess it's a heavy metal slash hardcore punk. Oh, no, that's such a specific genre. Right? <laughs> I mean, I've never even heard that term until I like saw. That's the band. That's what they Oh, they're the hardcore band. Yeah. It's so weird. But yeah, that's my story of this fucking psycho. <laughs> Miss Psycho Bitch, Ed Gein. I know, You're- I like didn't even... To be honest, I didn't really know about him and his name. I didn't know his name. Which is crazy because, like, a lot of things are, like, based off him. Yeah. And maybe I'd heard his name and I'd heard his story, but I did not connect them in my head. <laughs> until you're like, there was some weird stuff in his house and I was like, nipple belt Ed. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. All right. So this week, I'm going to be talking about John Wayne Gacy, who is also known as the Killer Clown. The largest of trigger warnings. I mentioned a lot of sexual assault, torture, murder, all bad things. Uh, Don't listen if you can't handle it, because I actually had to take breaks when researching because it was too much for me even. (laughs) But Brandy, you get to listen. Yay. Yay. John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago on March 17, 1942, to an auto repair and World War I veteran father and a homemaker mother. He was the second of three children and the only son in his Catholic family, and they had ancestral roots going back to Poland and Denmark. Gacy had a pretty bad relationship with his father, who was an alcoholic that physically abused all the members of the family. His dad would frequently berate him, calling him dumb and stupid, and one of his earliest memories was actually his dad beating him with a leather belt for accidentally messing up car components that he had assembled. He was, however, close to his sisters and his mother, who would try and protect him from his father's abuse, but this didn't help much as it just led to him belittling him further by calling him a sissy and mama's boy who would probably end up queer. That's what happens if you love your mom too much, you're gay. Aaron, <laughs> yeah. you know it was a sin to love your mother. Yours was kind of the opposite. <laughs> he was super straight for his mom. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Okay, anyway. All of the verbal and physical abuse aside, and while admitting that he felt like he was never going to be good enough in his eyes, Gacy still loved his father. In 1949, when he was probably around seven, his dad was informed that he and another boy had been sexually fondling a little girl. As a punishment, the elder Gacy whipped him with a razor strop, which is kind of like a leather belt thing. That same year, yeah, that same year, Gacy himself was molested by a family friend multiple times, but he did not tell his parents as he was afraid that his dad was going to blame him for the abuse. Due to a heart condition, Gacy was advised by doctors to avoid sports in school, and as a result, he was an overweight and unathletic kid. Starting in the fourth grade, he began to experience blackouts, which led to multiple multiple hospitalizations. Once in 1957, he was also admitted to a hospital for a burst appendix. All of these admissions led Gacy to later estimate they probably spent about a year in hospitals between the ages of 14 and 18. 
which he uses to blame his bad grades on. <laughs> Probably because of the bad grades, he went on to drop out of high school during his sophomore year. His medical condition was never actually diagnosed, and his father would openly accuse Gacy of faking his condition for attention and sympathy. Like, literally, as he was in his hospital bed, he'd be like, nah, you're faking it. (laughs) (laughs) You lying. Gacy's mom and sisters, as well as his friends, did actually believe that he was ill. In later interviews, a close friend of Gacy in high school recalled that he had seen Gacy's father abuse him several times. He noted one night in 1957 when the father came up drunk from the family's basement where he liked to go isolate himself and get drunk. And he began to belittle the younger Gacy and physically assault him for no obvious reason. The friend noticed that Gacy never hit his dad back during these moments of abuse. He just simply raised his hands in defense. And at the time of the incident I mentioned, I think he was probably around 15 years old. So, at the age of 18, Gacy became involved in politics and worked as an assistant precinct captain for a local Democratic candidate, which led to more abuse from his dad, who labeled him a patsy. Later in life, Gacy theories that the reason he became into politics was to get acceptance from others that he could never get from his father. This same year, 1960, Gacy's father bought him a car, although he kept the car's title in his own name until the teenager would be able to pay it off. And this actually took years of monthly payments. And whenever he wouldn't listen to his father, he would be punished by him taking away the key so he couldn't go anywhere. Which is fucked up. During one incident in 1962, Gacy's dad had taken the key so he actually went and bought an extra set. But I guess somehow his dad found out and in return he removed the distributor cap from the car for three days so he couldn't use it. Uh, As he recalled this event, he said that he felt totally sick and drained after this. Just hours after the cap was replaced, Gacy left home and drove to Las Vegas. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) When in Vegas, he got a job within the ambulance service and was quickly transferred to work as an attendant at a mortuary, where he slept on a cot behind the embalming room. One night, Gacy was alone in the building and climbed into the coffin of a dead teenage boy, embracing and caressing the body before going into shock. I Okay, so I found a book on him that's like, he did a lot of interviews later on with like this one guy that he thought was on his side that definitely wasn't. And this person talked to an author and they made a book. And then I read a little bit of the book, but they were saying like, he thought... um he would see the bodies and be like, oh, I should be dead. Not these like nice, beautiful bodies and just weird shit. And he would just go in the coffins and feel the darkness. And I'm like, okay. Okay. (laughs) The very next day, Gacy claims that he called his mother and asked if his dad would allow to come back home and was told yes. He'd only stay at the mortuary for three months. Upon arriving back home, Gacy was able to attend business school despite the fact that he'd never graduated high school. He went on to work as a manager for a shoe company in 1964 and ended up relocating to Springfield, Illinois, where he became engaged to a co-worker named Marilyn Myers. Around this time, he also joined the local JCs, which, according to Wikipedia, is a leadership training and civic organization for people between the ages of 18 and 40. In 1964, he also had his second same-sex encounter when he went to spend the night at a fellow JC's house. The two had been drinking, and when they arrived at the other man's house, uh, he just started going down on Gacy. (laughs) 
By 1965, Gacy had become vice president of the Springfield Jaycees and was named the third most outstanding Jaycee in the state of Illinois. Him and Marilyn had married the fall before, and her father had bought three KFCs in Waterloo, Iowa, and he asked if the couple could go and manage them. They agreed and were even basically given her old house, which her parents left for them, and they were promised to be making $15,000 a year plus extra profits, and that's equal to about $123,000 now. Damn. Dude. I was like, oh, how much is $15,000? can not be too much. Nope. Wild. <laughs> Sheesh. After moving to Waterloo, Gacy joined the local JCs and went on to open a club in his basement where his mostly teenage boy employees could hang out, drink, and play pool. Sometimes Gacy would attempt to make sexual advances to the boys, but if he was rejected, he would just say it was a joke or he was testing their morals. And it was like some of the ones I read about were more than sexual advances. They were like basically assault and had to be like, no, get the fuck off of me. Nasty. Yeah. In February of 1966, Gacy and his wife welcomed a son, followed in March of the next year by a daughter. He went on to say that this time of his life was perfect. He'd even won his dad's approval. On one trip home, he'd pulled Gacy aside and apologized for all of his childhood abuse, telling him, son, I was wrong about you, before shaking his hand. In August of 1967, Gacy lured the 15-year-old son of a fellow JC to his home, promising to show him heterosexual stag films, which is kind of like uh, silent pornos basically back then. And uh, these they would regularly play at the JC events. So I don't know if they were all just like jacking off together. I have no idea. But anyway, he got the teen drunk, allowed him to watch the movie, and then convinced him that they should perform oral sex on each other, saying, you have to have sex with a man before you start having sex with women. Over the next few months, he went on to abuse several other teenagers, some of whom he tricked and others he simply paid for sex. Oh, and some of the ways that he tricked them, he'd be like, oh, I'm doing a experiment for this, like, science thing. So, like, you need to do it. And just, it's like they were gullible teenagers, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's fucked up. In March of 1968, the first young kid that he'd abused went and told his dad what happened. Immediately, the authorities were informed and Gacy was arrested and charged with performing oral sodomy and the attempted assault of a 16-year-old separate victim. He denied the charges and requested a lie detector test, which had inconclusive results due to Gacy's nervousness. While many JCs actually believed and supported him, which is fucked up, by the way, he was eventually indicted on the charge. In an attempt to stop the boy from testifying, Gacy paid another 18-year-old employee to go and attack the victim. The victim is fucked, but the victim was able to get away only after being beaten and sprayed with mace. Oh, yeah. He later identified his attacker, who, after some pressure, told on Casey. <laughs> so he was also had an added charge of trying to intimidate a witness. Casey was ordered to undergo a psyche valve and was examined by two doctors over the course of 17 days who concluded that he had antisocial personality disorder, which is the clinical term for being a sociopath or psychopath. It was determined that he was unlikely to benefit from any type of therapy or medication, but he was indeed fit to stand trial. In November of 1968, Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to the first victim, saying that he had offered himself to him and he acted out of curiosity. But he did deny abusing any other kids. 
Thankfully this time, nobody believed him, and he was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. That very same day, his wife filed for divorce, and he never saw her or his kids again. (laughs) She's like, nah, fuck you. (laughs) While in prison, Gacy became a model prisoner and had risen to the position of head cook quickly. He also joined the inmate JC chapter and was able to significantly increase its number of members. I think it was like less than 100 to several hundred. Yeah. It's weird. He weirdly even oversaw the installation of a mini golf course in the prison, which I'm pretty sure I read is still there today. Oh, shit. Weird. I don't know why they were giving him like so much control here. In 1969, Gacy earned his high school diploma after completing the courses in prison. And that same year, on Christmas, his father died. When he found out, he dropped to the floor and began to sob. After having served just 18 months, Gacy was granted parole with 12 months probation on June 18, 1970. Like a year and a half into his 10-year sentence, in case anyone doesn't want to do that math. Per his probation's conditions, he had to stay with his mom and had a curfew of 10 p.m. He was planning on, like regaining his reputation everything in waterloo but within 24 hours of being released he decided to relocate to chicago where he soon got a job as a short order cook in february of 1971 gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy who had been lured to his car but this charge was dropped when the boy didn't show up to testify on june 22nd of that same year he was arrested and charged with aggravated sexual battery and reckless conduct after a different teen said gacy had pretended to be a cop lured him into his car and forced him to go down on him. These charges were dropped because the victim attempted to blackmail Gacy. And just think, there's probably so many people who did not say anything. That's the scariest part. Yeah, that's very common with less, like, assault. Yeah, especially, like, yeah, especially back then, because a lot of people were homophobic, obviously. I, I, like, I'll talk about victims later and stuff, but some people think that they're still unidentified victims because the families didn't want to think that, oh, my son might have potentially been gay or something. Mm. They'd rather just not know if their kid was brutally murdered, I guess. I don't fucking know. It's stupid. Uh, Naturally, the Iowa Board of Parole did not learn about these two incidents, and in October of 1971, Gacy's parole ended and his previous criminal conviction records were sealed. He was a free man. They didn't do the research. They didn't do any fucking research. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what they would have done in the 70s, but make a fucking phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The year before, Gacy had established a construction business, which was called PDM Contractors, standing for painting, decorating, and maintenance. By 1975, this business had become a full-time job and was bringing $200,000 a year in. Wow. Which is... Much more than that now. I didn't look up the number, but hundreds of thousands. Also, I said the year before. I think this is also 1971. (laughs) With the help of his mom, Gacy was able to buy a home in Chicago at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue. Not long after he and his mother moved into this new home, Gacy became engaged to a divorcee named Carol Hoff, who had two young daughters that soon moved in. So, Gacy committed his first known murder on January 3rd, 1972. According to his story, the night before, he had left a family party before heading out to go see some ice sculptures that were on display by the Civic Center. He ended up at Chicago Greyhound bus terminal where he encountered a 16-year-old boy named Timothy McCoy. 
Timothy was traveling from Michigan to Omaha, Nebraska, and agreed to go with Gacy on a sightseeing trip around Chicago. After driving around with the teenager, Gacy took him back to his house, telling him that he could stay the night and he'd drive him back to the bus station in the morning. By Gacy's account, the next morning he woke up to see Timothy standing in his bedroom doorway with a knife in hand. He jumped mm. out of bed. <laughs> he jumped out of bed and went towards Timothy, who raised his arms in surrender, accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm in the process. Gacy twisted the knife from Timothy, banged his head against the wall, and kicked him against the wardrobe before walking towards them. In self-defense, Timothy kicked Gacy in the stomach, causing him to double over in pain. Gacy then retaliated by wrestling the 16-year-old to the ground while shouting, Motherfucker, I'll kill you, before straddling Timothy and stabbing him in the chest multiple times. I'm assuming that his uh, family was out of town when this happened. Yeah, I assume so, too. <laughs> They're just in the other room like, huh, what's that? <laughs> While Timothy lay on the ground dying, Gacy went to clean the knife in his bathroom before heading to the kitchen. When he went into this room, he discovered an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon, suggesting that Timothy had actually just gone to wake up Gacy for breakfast and had it meant to be carrying the knife. Just absentmindedly was carrying it and got murdered. Gacy later noted that while he felt totally drained after killing the boy, while stabbing him and listening to him gasp for air, he experienced an intense orgasm, saying... Uh. That's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill. He went on to bury Timothy in his crawl space and later covered the grave with a layer of concrete. Gacy and Carol were married on July 1st, 1972. And right before the wedding, Gacy's mom moved out. On a work trip to Florida in 1973, Gacy raped a teenage employee in their hotel room. Mm -hmm, I'm sorry, I just kind of jumped straight into that sentence. Sheesh. I should just say, like, nearly all of my paragraphs should need fucking trigger warnings. It's really bad. Yeah. The victim later showed up to Gacy's house and beat him in his front yard. Yeah, which his wife actually saw, but he lied and told his wife it's because the kid did a really bad job working, so he didn't want to pay him. Not the truth, that he raped him. Of course. I mean, like, kudos to the kid, though. Oh, for beating his ass? Yeah, or like, I was like, dang, should have killed him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awful. Gacy killed for the second time around January of 1974, though this victim still remains unidentified. Uh, Whoever it was, he was strangled to death and placed in a closet before being buried. Gacy later stated that this victim's body began to leak fluid from its mouth and nose, staining his carpet. Following this, he began to stuff rags, underwear, or socks into the mouths of victims to prevent further leakage. Ew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gross. On Mother's Day of 1975, Gacy and his wife had sex, and right after, Gacy told her that this was going to be the last time he slept with her. <laughs> Just straight up. At least he's he honest. Began- That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking weird. I think she thought he was kidding, and she's like, what? She's like, okay. <laughs> He began to spend lots of time away from the house, claiming that he was working late. That same year, he also started to work as a clown and go and visit sick children to provide them entertainment. I'll be uploading pictures of him as Pogo the Clown, don't you worry. (laughs) In May of 1975, Gacy hired a 15-year-old named Anthony Antonucci. I'm guessing that's how you say his last name, hopefully. 
and one night in July, Gacy went to visit him at home. The two drank a bottle of wine and watched another stag film before Gacy suddenly grabbed Anthony and wrestled him to the floor. He was able to get the teen's hands and cuff them behind his back before going to the other room for a moment. While Gacy was gone, the victim, who happened to be a high school wrestler, thankfully, was able to free an arm, and as Gacy returned, he pounced on him and wrestled him to the floor. In this process, Anthony was able to get the key, free himself, and handcuff Gacy, who he left face down on the floor for a few minutes, unsure what to do. (laughs) Gacy was able to calm down and promise Anthony that if he let him go, he'd leave. Eventually, the 15-year-old agreed, let him up, and Gacy told him, not only are you the only one who got out of your cuffs, you got them on me before leaving. Ugh. And obviously, he was a 15-year-old who was probably, like, fucking confused and drinking, and he was like, yeah, I didn't know what the fuck he meant. Yeah. On July 31st, 1975, one of Gacy's employees, 18-year-old John Voltkovich, disappeared. John had previously worked in a hardware store when he met Gacy and was offered a job at his construction company, which paid more. He worked with Gacy for over a year and would sometimes even go over to have dinner with the Gacy family. And, like, he'd even play with, like, his stepkids and stuff. Like, they seemed very friendly. But the relationship was sometimes tense, as Gacy had no problem yelling at his employees over issues like money or hours. Sometimes this yelling would even lead to wrestling matches. How inappropriate is that? What What the fuck? I, is he just, like, starting shit because he wanted to, like, wrestle teenagers? It was he, fucking... Yeah, he probably just wanted to, you know, <sighs> like, touch him. Ew, it's so creepy. The day before John went missing, he had been over to Gacy's house where he was alone as his wife and stepkid had left town. He went with two friends to confront Gacy as he had not paid the teenager for his last two weeks of work because he'd recently quit. Like, this was his final check. Eventually, the issue was settled, and the three teenagers drank and smoked a little of Gacy before leaving. For a little bit, he fell asleep in an armchair before heading out to go cruising. While driving around the final area that he liked to cruise, and while headed home, he happened to notice none other than John getting out of his car and waving him over. The teenager was still drunk and wanted to talk to Gacy, who had him get in his car as there were another car behind them. The two headed back to Gacy's house as John was angry again about the mispay. According to Gacy, he had been trying to calm down the teenager who kept switching between being angry and apologizing. To distract him, he told him a story about seeing police arrest a man and handcuffing him while he had been driving around. John wasn't impressed, but Gacy insisted. If he let him handcuff him, he could show him what happened because it was so cool. Gacy securely fastened both of John's hands behind his back before telling him, now you ain't going to kick anyone's ass. According to according to the book I read, he'd planned on keeping John there for the night to sober up, and he last remembers laying with him on the ground after he had sat on his chest for a while. The next morning, Gacy woke up in his bed and discovered John's dead body lying on the ground in the other room. A rope was wrapped tightly around his neck. He claims to not remember the murder, which personally I don't believe, And he said that he was surprised to find that he didn't really have any strong feelings about the death of this young boy who he had known for over a year. He'd initially been planning on burying John in the home's crawl space, but his wife and stepkids arrived home earlier than anticipated, so he instead buried the body under the concrete floor of the garage, where he'd originally been planning to dig a drain tile. And I should say, because I said I read the book, I read bits and pieces of the book, so 
That was the main point of view murder that I read the book, okay? Just so you know. Okay. The next morning, John's father discovered his son's car sitting on the street with the key still in the ignition. Police were called, and in the car, they also found John's checkbook, a jacket, and a wallet with $40 in it. John's father had been told about the plan to confront Gacy, so he reached out to him himself to see if he'd heard from his son. Gacy said that he was happy to help them search for their son, and he was sorry that he had run away. Police questioned him about John's location, and he told them how he had met with the three teenagers to discuss the pay issue, but that the matter had been settled and they had left. Over the years, John's parents actually called the police more than 100 times trying to get them to investigate Gacy further in relation to their child's disappearance, but the police dismissed them and told them that their son had likely just run away without his car, checkbook, or wallet. You know? Yeah, because that's... That's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. You just leave Stupid. without everything you need. Literally, keys in the ignition, and we're like, I'm going to suddenly run away. <laughs> So dumb. Stupid. Fears that Gacy was cheating led to a rift in the relationship with Carol, which came to a head in October of 1975. Apparently, the couple got into an intense argument after after Carol balanced the checkbook incorrectly, and this fight actually ended in her asking for a divorce. Oh, wow. And so, I, I guess it was really bad. <laughs> Gacy agreed, and for a bit, the two decided that her and her daughters could stay in the home still. They later moved out in February of 1976. In 1976, Gacy also killed his fourth victim, 18-year-old Daryl Sampson, who was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Gacy abducted and murdered the young man before burying him under the dining room of his home. Several weeks later, on May 15, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared while walking home from school. Hours after Randall vanished, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton was walking over from his sister's apartment when he also disappeared. He was reported missing the next day. It's believed that both of these young victims were murdered by Gacy in the same night as their bodies were later found buried together. Damn, bro. I know, right? He's escalating. Oh, fucking for sure. <laughs> On June 3rd, 1976, 17-year-old Michael Bonin had been traveling from Chicago to walk again, probably, when he suddenly disappeared. Gacy had strangled him to death and buried him under his spare bedroom. Just 10 days later, Gacy took the life of his next victim, 16-year-old William Carroll, whom he buried in the crawl space. On July 26, 1976, Gacy picked up an 18-year-old hitchhiker named David Cram, who he offered a job at PBM. He agreed and began working that very same night. The next month, Cram moved into Gacy's home. One day after moving in, the two were having drinks to celebrate Cram's 19th birthday, with Gacy dressed up as his Pogo the Clown persona. At some point, Gacy was able to trick Cram into putting on handcuffs, and he then began to swing the young man around while holding onto like the chain link between the cuffs, uh, telling him that he was going to rape him. Uh, uh-huh. So Cram kicked Gacy in the face and freed himself. <laughs> I'm not sure what exactly he said to the to this kid, like to smooth things over, but Cram still stayed in the home even after this incident. Damn. On August 5th, 1976, a 16-year-old from Minnesota named James Hawkinson phoned home to his family, possibly from Gacy's house. This is the last anyone heard of him. 
He, too, had been suffocated by Gacy, and his body was later found buried in the crawl space under that of 17-year-old Rick Johnston, who had last been seen on August 6th, hinting that the two had either been killed on the same day or within a couple days of each other. A month after he first tried to attack Cram, Gracie showed up to his bedroom door and told him, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. He again attempted to rape Cram, who was able to resist him. Gacy eventually gave up, telling him, you ain't no fun. It's believed that the next two victims were killed between August and October of 1976, but their bodies are still unidentified. On October 5th, Cram moved out of Gacy's home and left his job at PDM, although he did sometimes work for Gacy over the next few years. Not long after he left, another PDM employee moved in, 18-year-old Michael Rossi, who had been with the company since May of 1976. Rossi lived there for a year and would occasionally assist Gacy in his clowning, dressing as a clown named Patches. On October 24, 1976, young friends Michael Marino, 14, and Kenneth Parker, 16, were last seen near a restaurant in Chicago. The two were later found buried together, and it's believed that they were murdered at the same time. Just a couple days later, 19-year-old William Bundy, who potentially had worked for Gacy, never arrived back home after telling his family he was going to a party. William had died of suffocation and was buried beneath Gacy's own bedroom. On December 11, 1976, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik also disappeared. He was last seen by his girlfriend after he dropped her off at her home after a date, but he himself never arrived home. Like so many victims before him, Gregory was also an employee of Gacy, although he'd only been working there for three weeks. The family later reached out to Gacy, who said that Gregory had likely run away from home, as he'd mentioned the idea to him before. He also mentioned getting an answering machine message from him shortly after he disappeared, but said that unfortunately he'd already deleted it when the family asked to hear it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to the family, he had been employed by Gacy to dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles in his crawl space, where the body of the 17-year-old was later found. Gacy later confirmed that he had had Gregory dig his own grave. Ah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fuck, man. Between December 1976 and March 1977, Gacy murdered a still unidentified adult male and buried him in his crawl space. On January 20th, 1977, Gacy lured 19-year-old John Sizik to his home on the pretext of buying his car. Gacy ended up strangling John in his spare bedroom and burying him in the crawl space. And then the very next morning, sold John's car to his roommate, Rossi. On March 15th, 1977, 20-year-old John Prestige was last seen after getting a coffee with a friend. He'd actually been from Michigan, but came to Chicago to visit a friend when he found a job with a contractor. It's unknown if this contractor was actually Gacy, but like, it was probably Gacy. John was also buried in the crawl space above the body of the unidentified one I just mentioned. In the spring of early summer of 1977, Gacy killed another victim and buried them in the crawl space. Their identity still remains unknown. On July 5th, 1977, 19-year-old Matthew Bowman was murdered by Gacy before being buried in the crawl space. He had last been seen by his mom at a train station. Uh, around that same time, Rossi actually was like pulled over for having that murder victim's car. Obviously, they didn't know he was murdered, but he just told them that he'd uh, bought it off of him and police let him go. 
preach. 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant and nephew of an investigator for the county state attorney, who was also a student at the University of Illinois in Chicago, went missing. He was last seen alive on September 15, 1977, after saying he was going to go to a horseback riding lesson. He lived just four blocks away from Gacy, who killed him and buried him in the crawl space. There's actually some debate on whether Gacy had an accomplice, specifically in this case, because Gacy had been in Pittsburgh and didn't arrive back until the day after Robert had disappeared. Hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, it, it's also possible, like, maybe he saw him somewhere the next day. Like, maybe Robert had, like, gone out that night, or maybe someone was helping him. Sketch. Very. On September 15, 1977, 19-year-old former Marine John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mom's home, telling family that he was going to go out for the night. He was strangled by Gacy and buried beneath his bedroom. And John was actually not the only murder victim in his immediate family. Six years before his own death, his 21-year-old sister Judith was killed when someone stabbed her to death in her apartment. And her case still remains unsolved. Can you imagine having not one... But two kids get murdered. Dude, that's so sad. Yeah. And I, I know they had at least one surviving sibling who was like, you can't even imagine how hard it is. On October 17th, 1977, 21-year-old Russell Nelson, who was from Minnesota, went missing after he was last seen outside of a bar in Chicago. It was known that at the time of his disappearance, he had been trying to find a job as a contractor. He himself was buried beneath Gacy's guest bedroom. 16-year-old Robert Winch was last seen alive on November 11, 1977. He had recently moved to Chicago from Michigan, where he'd gotten in trouble after running away from his foster home. He was killed by Gacy and buried in the crawlspace. 20-year-old Tommy Bowling was married and had a 3-year-old son. He was last seen on November 18, 1977. He, too, was buried in the crawlspace. 19-year-old Marine David Talsma was last seen on December 9th after telling his mom that he was going to go see a rock concert in Indiana. David was strangled by Gacy and buried in the crawl space. Yeah. On December 30th, 1977, Gacy abducted 19-year-old student Robert Donnelly at gunpoint. He drove Robert to his home where he proceeded to rape and torture him. Gacy repeatedly dunked his victim's head underwater in a bathtub until he passed out, saying things like, aren't we playing fun games tonight? At one point, Robert was in such pain that he asked Gacy to just kill him, to which he replied, I'm getting round to it. After several hours of this, Gacy drove Robert back to his workplace and dropped him off, warning them that if he went to the police, nobody would believe him. I didn't know he let anyone go. Fuck, dude. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Gacy was right. Robert went to the police to report the assault, and on January 6, 1978, they went to speak with Gacy. He denied the rape and said that he had a, se- a slave sex relationship with Robert, who was just upset because he hadn't been paid the money he'd been promised. The police sided with Gacy and filed no charges. Like, I just know he showed signs of trauma and they were just fucking rude and stupid. <sighs> 19-year-old William Kindred disappeared on February 16, 1978, after telling his fiance that he was going to go spend the evening in a bar. His fiance actually knew Gacy herself, but it's unclear if William knew him as well. He was the last murder victim of Gacy to be buried in the crawlspace. 
Jeffrey Rignall was a 26-year-old bisexual man who lived with his girlfriend and a male living companion. He'd been walking over to a local gay bar in Illinois where he worked on March 21, 1978, when Gacy pulled up and lured him into his car, promising him a free ride in a joint. Once in the car, Gacy chloroformed his victim until he passed out and drove him to his house. Jeffrey actually woke up several times during the ride, but Gacy would just hold the chloroform-soaked rag over his face until he lost consciousness again. Uh, I'm going to say another trigger warning, even though it's all been one big trigger warning. This paragraph was really bad. It was hard to even read, so be ready, Brandy. <laughs> yep. Once in the home, Jeffrey was fastened to a device called the rack. The rack was a torture device that Gacy had set up to restrain his victims, and it was a wooden board with chains hanging it up that had holes for his victims' head and arms to go through. As well as this, he had secured Jeffrey's legs. Gacy then stood in front of his victim naked and told him that he could do whatever he wanted to him, showing him multiple dildos and telling him what he was going to do with each of them. For hours, Jeffrey was raped and tortured with several different objects, including lit candles and whips. He was also repeatedly chloroformed until he passed out again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Eventually, Gacy drove to Chicago's Lincoln Park and dumped the still-alive but unconscious Jeffrey. When he first awoke in the park, Jeffrey thought maybe he'd just been having a really awful dream because it felt so fucking unreal, until he tried to move and realized that he was in severe pain. He was able to stagger his way back home to his girlfriend, who called an ambulance and took him to the hospital, where he stayed for six days. He told police his story, but they didn't believe him, only starting to come around to parts of it when the doctor confirmed that Jeffrey had suffered from skin lacerations, severe anal penetration, burns, and permanent liver damage caused by the chloroform. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much he was getting chloroformed, man. Despite accepting that at least some parts of Jeffrey's story were true, the police said that the evidence was shaky and did not want to investigate. What part of that shaky, Brandy? What part of that is shaky? What the fuck? Because I guess it probably looked like gay shit. You know what I mean? Oh, I fucking hate them. Stupid. But like, still. Yeah. It's a weird I... job. Yeah, for real. Following this disappointment, Jeffrey began staking out roads looking for Gacy's car, which he actually eventually did see and followed the car to Gacy's home, where he took down the license plate number and address, which he then provided to the police. I read some conflicting reports, but either the police again declined to investigate or they only filed battery charges against Gacy, and he wasn't even like arrested at the time. Regardless, they definitely didn't do enough. Nope. Jeffrey later partnered with an author, like, years later, to write a memoir named 29 Below, which he talks about his experience with the serial killer and his attempts to find him. Unfortunately, Jeffrey himself died of AIDS-related causes on December 24th, 2000, at just 49 years old. Damn. Yeah. So, like I said, after William Kindred, Gacy was now to space to bury his victims in the crawlspace. He considered putting them in his attic, but was worried about leakage. So, I just hate the word leakage now. So, he decided instead that he would start to dump them off the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River. I don't know if that's how you say it. I'll just say Des Plaines. Des Plaines River. Thanks to Gacy's charity work, he was able to meet and be photographed with the first lady at the time, Rosalind Carter. 
This later became a huge embarrassment to the Secret Service as they literally let a serial killer have special clearance to meet her. And this was like... Yeah, it was like six years after his first murder. Can you imagine? Jesus. In mid-June of 1978, 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke disappeared. He was last seen after leaving his apartment to go buy cigarettes. Friends later said that he would frequent gay bars where Gacy was known to possibly look for victims. His roommate also said that not long before he went missing, Timothy had told him that a contractor on the northwest side had offered him a job. His body was recovered on June 30th, but remained unidentified for several months, and he was the first known victim of Gacy to be thrown off the I-55 bridge. On November 4th, 1978, 19-year-old Franklin Landigan went missing. He died of asphyxia after Gacy shoved a pair of bikini briefs down his throat. Uh. Yeah. His body was also dumped off the I-55 bridge and found about a week later. On November 24th, 1978, 20-year-old James Mazzara, nicknamed Mojo, disappeared after having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. He was last seen walking out the suitcase towards Washington Square Park. The day before going missing, he had actually told his sister that he was working in the construction industry and doing all right. His body was later found in the Des Plaines River about a month later, though a cause of death could not be determined. On December 11, 1987, Gacy went to visit a pharmacy in Des Plaines, Illinois, to discuss a possible remodeling deal with the store's owner. He mentioned to the owner that his firm was hiring teenage boys starting at $5 an hour, which was twice as much as the pharmacy paid. By the way, I looked it up, and $5 in 1978 is equal to about $20.64 now. Oh, wow. Fuck yeah. If I heard that, I'd be like, hello, I need a job. (laughs) The reason he mentioned this is likely because he was an earshot of a 15-year-old boy named Robert Peast, who was described as being a good student gymnast and was very close to his family. Gacy ended up leaving the pharmacy, and around 9 p.m., Robert's mom showed up to pick him up from his job as that night was her 46th birthday party and the family had postponed the party just to make sure that Robert was going to be able to make it. He asked her to wait, telling her, some contractor wants to talk to me about a job, assuring her that he'd be back soon. I'm assuming that Gacy was able to lure him into his car and his home with the promise of talking about a potential job. When in the home, he asked the young boy if there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price. Robert responded that he didn't mind working hard. Gacy told him that good money could be earned by hustling, but he wasn't interested in that. Somehow, Gacy was able to trick the teen into donning a pair of handcuffs. I'm so sorry for this. Before telling him, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it. (sighs) Gacy proceeded to assault the crying and scared boy and wrap a rope around his neck. He later admitted that he left to go take a business call as Robert lay suffocating to death on his bedroom floor. He had died just shortly after 10, about an hour after telling his mom he'd be right back. Gacy later dumped Robert's body off the I-55 bridge where it wasn't discovered for a few months. See, all the other ones weren't very descriptive, but then when they described him crying and scared, I'm like, oh my god, yeah, they were just a kid. Yeah, makes it worse. Mm-hmm. When Robert didn't come back to the pharmacy, his family grew worried and reported him as missing. The police spoke with the store owner, who informed him that the man who wanted to talk to Robert about job was probably Gacy. The main detective became convinced that Robert had not run away from home and began to look into Gacy further, finding out that he had been in prison before for the sodomy of a 15-year-old. Two days after Robert went missing, investigators went to Gacy's house to question him on if he'd seen the boy. 
Casey told them that he had seen two young men working at the pharmacy, and he believed that he had asked Robert about remodeling materials behind the store, but he insisted that he had not offered him a job. He said that he'd only returned to the pharmacy a little after eight because he had left his appointment book in the store and, like, got a call from the owner to come get it. He told officers he could go to the police station later and make a statement, but that his uncle had just died, so he couldn't at that moment. When questioned further about when, what time he'd show up, Gacy responded, You guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? Mm. Around 3.20 that morning, Gacy showed up to the police station covered in mud, saying that he'd just been in a car accident. I'm assuming he left again because I read that he went back later that day and he again denied being involved in Robert's disappearance or offering him a job. He repeated his same stories the night before. He returned to the pharmacy because the owner called him to come get his appointment book. But the thing is, police had already spoken to the owner who said he never made that phone call. Knowing that he must be lying, police had Gacy prepare a statement documenting his supposed movements on December 11th. Basically writing down his lie. (laughs) A search warrant for Gacy's house was obtained on December 13, 1978. During this search, investigators found several worrisome items. They found police badges and a starter pistol in an office drawer, a syringe and hypodermic needle in the cabinet in Gacy's bathroom, and they found handcuffs. They also discovered books and magazines about homosexuality, with quite a few showing older men with young boys. They found an 18-inch dildo. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Scary. And one of the home's bedrooms, they also found a 39-inch plank of wood with two holes drilled in each end, bottles of Valium and atropine. I don't know how to pronounce that one, a 1975 main class ring with the initials J-A-S engraved on it, and several driver's license. Inside a bathroom closet was a pair of underwear too small to fit Gacy. They also found a photo receipt from the pharmacy Robert worked at in the trash, along with a 36-inch section of nylon cord. Police confiscated Gacy's cars and assigned two two two-man surveillance teams to keep an eye on him, switching out every 12 hours. On December 15th, detectives on Robert P.'s case found out more about this battery charge, and that, in fact, it had actually been a brutal attack where the victim was raped and tortured. A little bit more than just battery. That same day, while speaking to Gacy's ex-wife, they learned about the disappearance of John Butkovich, and they were also able to trace back the school ring to John Allen Sizik. After speaking with John's mother, they were told that several items from her son's apartment were also missing, including a TV set. By December 16th, Gacy had become weirdly friendly with the surveillance detectives, frequently inviting them to join him for meals and drinks, like out in public and in his home. He still continued to deny being involved in Robert's disappearance and said he was being harassed because of his political connections and because he recreationally used drugs. On more than one occasion, Gacy was able to lose a surveillance team by ignoring traffic laws, knowing that they likely wouldn't arrest him on such a trivial charge. Also on December 16th, investigators spoke with Cram, who told them how, which was the old roommate, by the way, who told them how Gacy was hardworking and open-minded about sex between men. He also told him how Gacy had gifted him a watch as he was bad at keeping track of his time and told him that he got the watch from a dead person. Mm. (laughs) What? On December 17th, detectives interviewed Rossi, the other old roommate, who told them how Gacy had sold him Sizik's car. The same day, Gacy's car was investigated further and in the trunk, a small cluster of fibers was found, which may have been human hair. 
That night, three trained German Shepherd search dogs were brought to the car to try and determine if Robert Peace had been in it at any point in time. One of the dogs went and laid on the passenger seat of Gacy's car, a movement which the dog's handler said was a death reaction. Robert's body had been in the car. Meanwhile, Gacy had been having dinner at a restaurant with two of the detectives keeping an eye on him. Early next morning on December 18th, he invited them somewhere else for breakfast and talked about his life, mentioning his time as a clown, remarking, you know, clowns can get away with murder. By now, Gacy was starting to appear strained from the constant surveillance. He appeared unshaven, tired, and anxious, and he'd begun drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office and began to prepare a $750,000 lawsuit against the Des Plaines police to make them end their watch on him. Meanwhile, the serial number on the pharmacy receipt I'd mentioned before was traced back to a 17-year-old Kim Byers, one of Robert's co-workers. She told officers in an interview that she had worn Robert's jacket on December 11th to shield herself from the cold, putting her receipt in it before handing it back to Robert, who then took it to go and meet the contractor about a job. Her story not only showed that Robert was likely in Gacy's house, but that Gacy had lied about having offered the team the job. The police spoke with Rossi, who told them how once in the summer of 1977, he'd spread 10 bags of lime in the crawlspace of Gacy's home per his request. On December 19th, Gacy's lawyers filed a lawsuit against the Des Plaines police, who were at the time compiling evidence for a second search warrant. That night, Gacy once again invited the detectives watching him into his home. While one officer was distracting him, another went into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to get the serial number from his TV set to see if it's the one that belonged to John Sezik. While this didn't work, he did notice that after flushing the toilet in the bathroom, he could smell what he believed to be rotting corpses coming from the heating duct. And this likely hadn't been noticed during the first warrant search as the heater was not on at that time. On December 20th, Cram and Rossi were both interviewed again. When asked where Gacy could have potentially put Robert Peace's body, Rossi said that maybe he'd put it in the crawl space. He also spoke about how he believed John Sizzik's car to be stolen and mentioned one time when he had been instructed to dig trenches in the crawl space for drainage pipes. Gacy was very specific about where exactly to dig and frequently would go back to check on him and make sure he wasn't deviated from the plan. Rossi agreed to a polygraph test and denied knowing anything about Robert, but soon grew erratic and refused to answer any more questions, which led to the lie detector to be inconclusive. Cram informed detectives at the time that Gacy had attempted to rape him. He also told them that after the first search of his property a week back, Gacy had been terrified to see a clot of mud that he believed came from the crawl space. He immediately took a flashlight and went to enter and see if anyone had been digging. When asked about whether he had ever been in the crawlspace himself, Cram said that he had been to spread lime for Gacy and to also dig trenches. The trenches, he said, were two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep, the size of graves. Literally, he was, like, giving them grave measurements to dig. What a fucking moron. Fuck. It's like he just went to a library. I was going to say Googled it, but it was back then. He was like, all right, this is a grave link. <laughs> <laughs> That evening, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office, appearing disheveled and requesting a drink. After getting some whiskey, he pointed to a newspaper on his lawyer's desk, which had an article about Robert Peast, and said, This boy is dead. He's dead. He's in the river. This was followed by a lengthy, rambling confession that went on for hours, in which he informed the lawyers that he had been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people, and now he wanted to be the same for himself. Gacy told them his M.O., which is going to be bad. I'm sorry. 
He'd usually invite the young men or boys over and get them drunk or high or just generally gain their trust. He'd then pull out a pair of handcuffs to show them a magic trick that he called the handcuff trick, sometimes recalling his past of clowning for the context. Normally, when he would handcuff his hands behind his back and then suddenly release himself with a key that he'd hidden between his, be- in between his fingers. He would then ask the victim if they wanted to see how he did it. Once he had the victims handcuffed, he would say something along the lines of, the trick is you have to have the keys. He would then proceed to rape, torture, and murder the boys. So that's why whenever I first read it, I was confused because they were like, he tricked him into getting into handcuffs. I was like, how do you trick someone into getting handcuffs? I was like, oh, you gain their trust. Talk about how you were a clown and show them a magic trick. Yeah. That's that actually makes sense. not that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times his torture would start with him sitting on the victim's chest first. He would also burn them with cigars, make them pretend to be horses as he sat on their backs and like pulled um, makeshift reins against their necks. Uh, he would rape them with dildos and foreign objects and partially drown them over and over in his bathtub. Many of the strangulation deaths ended with the rope trick, as he so called it, in which Gacy would place a rope tourniquet around his victim's neck and keep tightening it more and more with a hammer handle. He would sometimes tell the boys this is the last trick as he killed them. Other victims were killed by asphyxiation from cloth shoved down their throats. On some occasions, the victims would lay convulsing for an hour or two before they finally died. All but two of Gacy's victims were killed between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. He would then store the bodies under his bed before burying them. And I didn't know when to put this, but I would like to say now that one of his neighbors, on multiple occasions over years, woke up to the sound of muffled screaming coming from his house, and at least once called the police who went over there and were like, oh, it's nothing. Like, and she even noted, or they even noted that it sounded like a teenage boy screaming. And she was like, maybe it's just drugs, hopefully. Uh, During his confession, he tried to dismiss his victims such as being male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars, which first of all was untrue. But even if it is true, you can't just kill people for that. (laughs) At some point, Gacy fell asleep, and one of the lawyers called to arrange a psychiatric appointment for him at 9 o'clock that morning. When he awoke and was told about his confession, he just shook his head and said, Well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do, before ignoring his lawyer's request to go to the appointment and just leaving their office. Knowing that he was bound to be arrested, Gacy spent his day visiting friends and saying his final goodbyes. While on his way up from the office, he went to a gas station to refill his rental car and handed the attendant a small bag of weed, which the attendant then immediately gave to the surveillance detectives. He recalls that Gacy told him, the end is coming, these guys are going to kill me. Worrying that Gacy may try and kill himself, police later arrested him on charges of possession and distribution of cannabis. By now, police had gotten their second search warrant in order and informed Gacy that they were going to look for Robert Peast in the crawl space, but he told them that he wasn't there. He did, however, inform them that he had killed a kid in self-defense and buried him under his garage. During the newest search, police discovered a trapdoor leading to a crawl space which had been flooded with water. They located a cord for a pump and in about 15 minutes were able to drain the water from the area, which had an awful smell to it. While waiting for it to drain, they went to the garage and found walls and jewelry that looked like something a teenager might wear. Evidence technician Daniel Genty went into the crawl space with a shovel, fearing the worst. Within minutes of beginning his excavation, he discovered decomposing human flesh. 
He took one last scoop into the crawl space somewhere else and hit something hard, the skeletal remains of a human arm. He immediately called for the detectives there to charge Gacy with murder, stating, I think this place is full of kids. Other technicians joined the search and found more human remains before calling it off and calling a coroner so they didn't tamper with the crime scene. One worker was quoted as saying, if the devil's alive, he lived here. Damn. Yeah. They thought that they were just going to find, like, Robert only. Really. They were not expecting the shit show that happened. I mean... No one would, right? (laughs) On December 21st, Gacy was arrested and charged with murder. When speaking to detectives, he asked if they'd gone into his crawl space, to which they said yes. He responded that the quicklam had been used for the sewage, the dampness, for what you found there. He then went on to explain that there were four Johns, and he didn't know all of them. One he called Jack Hanley, and this one hated gay people and was responsible for the killing and all the people found in the home. Another personality named John had to do all the dirty work of covering up for Jack. He also told detectives that there were 25 to 30 bodies in his home and that Robert Peast, whose disappearance had started this investigation, had been thrown into the Des Plaines River. Reporters spoke to Gacy's neighbors who were shocked. To them, Gacy was a community-minded, social, and generous man. He would always clear up streets and driveways in his neighborhood when it snowed and had worked so hard to get streetlights installed in a local park. Every year, he threw a summer party for around 400 people in his yard and played an active role in organizing Chicago's Polish Day Parade and making sure it all went as planned. He even dressed as a clown and went to go entertain sick children, all for free. It seemed impossible that he could do all these wonderful things, yet he'd still taken the lives of so many innocent boys and young men. The only bad things they could note was that he was a little braggy and that sometimes he bullied his teenage employees which they just justified as saying, oh, well, he's a perfectionist and such a hard worker. Of course, he's going to be hard on them. While his neighbors were being interviewed, Gacy himself was drawing a map. Investigators had asked where all the bodies are buried in the home and were struggling to understand his answers, so he drew small rectangles on a sheet of paper that showed exactly where the remains were. After drawing the map, he suddenly dropped his head down to his chest, clenched his fist at his sides, and froze, almost as though he's unconscious. After about a minute, he raised his head again, looked at the map, and said in a groggy voice, What's going on? Did Jack... I see Jack drew a diagram of the crawl space. He was basically trying to set himself up as a person who suffered from disassociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Just two days after Gacy's arrest for murder, the first two bodies were exhumed from his home. Investigators released a statement saying that they believed they were perhaps as many as 20 bodies buried in the crawl space. At this time, they didn't even want to believe his number, like, of 25 to 30. After a short break for Christmas, the search resumed and 10 more bodies were found. The next day after that, 6 more were exhumed. Within a few months, a total of 29 bodies had been found in Gacy's home. None of the victims appeared to have been mutilated after death, though some had been wrapped in plastic trash bags. A large amount of victims were found with cloth, sometimes their own underwear, lodged in their throats, which suggested that they died of suffocation. Mm. Others were... that I don't know. That just really fucks me up thinking about that one. Um, others were found with ligatures still around their necks, which hinted at strangulation. There were also some remains with foreign objects, such as socks or prescription bottles lodged in their pelvic region, which was likely caused by them being sexually assaulted with them before death. As well as the bodies found in Gacy's home, more bodies had been found in the Des Plaines River, bringing Gacy's total number of murder victims to 33. 
These victims, too, had shown signs of either being strangled or suffocated to death. On February 6, 1980, Gacy was charged with 33 murders. Um, I also wanted to say that whenever I was writing my notes, because there's some un- unidentified victims, some of them I don't think I wrote down because I didn't get a clear date on it. So, just letting you know, 33. Thank you. Gacy's defense team attempted to argue that he was not guilty by reason of insanity, which Gacy himself did not even approve of. Thankfully, all the evidence showing careful planning and attempts to hide his murders led to the jury to believe that he had been in the right mind state when he had killed all 33 victims. The jury deliberated for a little less than two hours and found Gacy guilty of sexual assault and murder. During sentencing, they had to discuss for a little bit longer, but eventually came to a decision. Gacy was going to be sentenced to death. His execution was set for June 2nd, 1980, but we all know that executions aren't that fast, right? He sat on death row for 14 years. Damn. <laughs> they should just not even sentence him to death. Like, what the fuck? That took so long. Well, while he was there, he read law books and attempted to make appeals, none of which worked. He weirdly began to get into painting, where he would choose random subjects from Disney characters to other murderers. Uh, later on, several of his victims' families went on to publicly burn some of these paintings. And I read that Zach Baggins bought one of these paintings recently. Zach Baggins of Ghost Adventures. <laughs> of course. He somehow still be involved even in our true crime weeks. He's everywhere. He's literally everywhere. He haunts me. <laughs> <laughs> on May 9th, 1994, Gacy was set to be executed. He was allowed to have a private picnic on prison grounds with his family, and for his last meal, he ordered a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That night, he prayed with a Catholic priest before being escorted to the execution chamber. The chemicals used for lethal injection actually became clogged in the IV tube when it came time for him to die, so this procedure which is normally pretty quick, and all took 18 minutes because they had to figure that shit out. One of the prosecutors later noted he got a much easier death than any of his victims. John Wayne Gacy was pronounced dead at 12.58 a.m. on May 10, 1994. His infamous last words before being executed were, kiss my ass. At this time, not all of Gacy's victims were identified, and in fact, the most recently identified victim was 16-year-old Jimmy Hackinson, who I said before, who was only identified in July of 2017. Oh, shit. Yeah. Following Gacy's arrest, Jimmy's mom actually tried to find out if her son had been one of the victims, but she didn't have his dental records, which was, like, the main way of identifying bodies back then. He was only recently identified thanks to DNA provided by his brother and sister. And as of now, there are still six victims of John Wayne Gacy who remain unidentified. But I I don't know. I'm really holding out hope. And I think that they could definitely get, like, identified someday. I'm hopeful. I hope so. Yeah. But uh, that's my story. My incredibly long story. Oh, he was also 52 when he died. Forgot to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in his old. 30s when he was doing this. Jeez. Yeah. Ooh. Fucking but, uh, wild. <laughs> this is the longest episode ever, so thank you so much if you stayed and listened. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else to add, Brandy? Um Fuck these fools. <laughs> fuck these fools is right. Glad they're dead. <laughs> uh yeah, but if you uh want to reach out to us for any reason, you can at the at gmail.com. 
Our Instagram and Twitter is SpookyShit.Pod, and our website is SpookyShit-Pod.com. Thank you all for listening. So sorry for this awful episode. We'll come back with some lighthearted ghostness next week, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.